The first reading is Job chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, A boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may the darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered into any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. For those who curse days, uh, curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn, for it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were the knees to receive me and the breast that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with princesses who had gold, who filled their house with silver. Oh, why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout, the small and the great are there, and the slaves are free from their owners. Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man who is, whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in, for sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. The second reading is from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted to us in answers to the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen.
Well, what is going on? How can it be that the text for today's sermon are the words of a man who wishes he was dead? Well, that's exactly what we have. Job 3, verse 3, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? And again, verse 20, Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure? who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. What we have here, I think, is one of the most eloquent statement of longing for non-existence and death that I think uh, I've, I, I know of. You may say, well, what the heck is it doing in the Scriptures? Well, come on a slightly harrowing journey with us this morning and uh, we'll explore these astounding words. And I'll approach it in three stages. One... What has happened to bring about these words? Two, hearing the words themselves. And three, learnings. What has happened to bring about these words? Well, we can start by asking whose words are they? And the speaker is one Job. Once we are informed, he had been a man with everything. First, he was a man of outstanding character and godliness. The book of Job opens with these words. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. A little later, none other than the Lord God himself will say of Job, there is none like him. As well as that, Job had immense wealth and the honour of a large family of sons and daughters. He was, we are told, the greatest man among all the people of the East. And yet this man is plunged into intense and profound suffering. It comes in two waves. In the first wave, he faces the shattering loss of all his wealth and then the utter catastrophe of the accidental death of all his children. In the second, he experiences the additional distress of disfiguring and disgusting boils all over his body and as we'll find out later, in all hop of that, he has become despised in his society because of all the bad things that have happened to him. He is publicly disdained and ridiculed, even by people who themselves are outcasts in that community. And finally, he's alienated even from his wife. The result is that Job finds himself in a living nightmare. How did it come to this? As we heard last week, there's a gathering in heaven in which the sons of God present themselves before the Lord. And the Lord points out his servant Job to one of them called uh, Satan, or the Satan, which Hebrew can mean the accuser. Have you considered my servant Job? There is none on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now whether the Satan was meant to be impressed by this example of exemplary godliness, perhaps pointing, pointing out someone to whom he could learn from. In fact, he's cynically unimpressed. Does Job fear God for nothing? You've, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands and that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. That the most godly man by far is also the richest man by far 
opens the way for the suggestion that maybe he's the one in order to be the other. So Satan challenges God. Now stretch out your hand and strike him, everything he has, and he'll surely curse you to your face. It's a test of Job. It's also a test of God who's put so much faith in Job. And it's that test and a subsequent one, that fo- intense one that follows, which plunges Job into such terrible suffering. And yet, as we heard last week, Job passes the test. Despite the loss of all his wealth, and even his children and his personal standing, he does not curse God to his face. Instead, he responds with remarkable acceptance. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And even during further afflictions, after which his wife urges him to give up, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Job does not do as she says. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? So despite what the accuser said, Job does fear God, irrespective of God's blessing on him. Job passes the test and God's trust in Job is vindicated. The Satan loses, it's all over. Well, not quite. It's not as simple as that. We read at the end of chapter 2 that Job sits for some seven days with three friends who have come and joined him to sympathise and to comfort him. But no one says anything to him because they see how great his suffering is. Then Job speaks again. This time he opens his mouth not to bless God, but to curse the day of his own birth and conception. What's going on? Well, Job might be able to say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and shall we accept good from God and not trouble? But that's not the end of it. Saying such things does not take away the horror Job now finds himself facing. Increasingly, the grief and despair overwhelm him, and finally opens his mouth in a cry of pain and loss. And that's what we've got here in front of us here in chapter 3. And it's this chapter and this utterance which propels the rest of the book of Job. wasn't for this, it would have ended. Instead of ending at the end of chapter 2, after two chapters, Job will now not conclude for another 39. Secondly, hearing the words themselves. As with most of the book of of Job, almost all the book of Job, our words this morning, are well-crafted, powerful poetry. Hebrew poetry that works not so much by rhyme as by rich repetition. So we hear Job's eloquent words of despair. For him, living has become so intolerable, he prefers the comfort of death or non-existence. His words come in three sections. The first section, because of his torment, Job deeply desires that he'd never been born, so he cursed the day of his birth. Not a day of rejoicing, a day of darkness. And rather than me tell you about it, let's listen to his words. 
May the day of my birth perish. And the night that it was said a boy conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May clouds settle upon it. May darkness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered into any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first day's rays of dawn. And why? Why all this rage against the day he was born? Verse 10. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me, nor hide trouble from me. That day, that's the day that led to all his troubles, the day he came into birth. Second section, life is so intolerable for Job that he, he wished he would rather be dead. And we have a domestic, a, a desperate lament, each beginning with the word why. Why was I, did I perish at birth or die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? And why does he wish he died at birth? Verse 3, for now I would be lying down in peace. I'd be asleep and at rest with the kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. You see, for Job, as for most of the Old Testament, death is understood as the end. There is no, there is no knowledge or prospect of anything else in death is all they know at this stage in the biblical account. And for Job, this is what's so desirable about it. You see this in the second wife of verse 16. Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, or an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil. There the weary are at rest. Captives enjoy their ease. No longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. Whereas normally in the scriptures, death is seen as a terrible thing to be avoided. For Job, it's somehow now to be desired. And the third part of his lament, agonizing why in a different way. For Job is not there. He's here, stuck here, alive. He can't be free from his turmoil. Why, why? Verse 20, why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death? that does not come, and search for it more than hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in, for sighing has become my daily food, and groans pour out like water? The bit of irony here is that where in chapter 1, the Satan saw that God had placed a hedge around Job and all his possessions to protect him, and had the hedge removed, now Job complains bitterly that God has hedged him in, so he's imprisoned in this miserable life he longs to leave but cannot. And so finally he concludes in a bitter, a bitter climax, what I feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, only turmoil. And of course that's his problem, no peace, no quietness, no rest, only turmoil. And the question for the rest of the book of Job will be, how will Job find peace? How will he find quietness? How will he find rest? 
how will he find freedom from this turmoil? Now, the trouble with this sermon on, the, uh, this sermon on Job, amongst others, is that Job was not written to be preached in slices like this. We're doing it here, but listen to, in, in one, I assume, in read aloud, performed, if you will, in the one, the one drama. Preaching on Job is like preaching on a little bit of Hamlet every week. Although, can I tell you, Job is, ma is ma a magnificent hero compared to, the, that, to Hamlet. There's no comparison between the character of the two men. So I need, without giving too much away, to indicate what's going to follow. So far we've heard Job wants peace by basically disappearing in death. But his friends, concerned for him, and we'll hear this more next week, they, they try at length to get Job to find peace another way, to find peace by turning to God in repentance for his wrongs. But this doesn't work for two reasons, says Job. One, I haven't done wrong, despite what you say. And we, of course, already know that's true. And second, Job says, I can't get God to deal with me on my terms at all. All he does is attack me. So without giving too much away, I can tell you that the friends are complete failures in comforting Job. And there are a couple of other things on the way as well. We'll come when we get to them. However, however, by the end of the book, Job will be peaceably reconciled with God. And this will come about unexpectedly from the Lord himself directly addressing Job, even though everyone said that could never, ever happen. And surprisingly, the Lord does not speak to Job about Job, nor about Job's troubles and sufferings. Instead, Job hears about God's almighty power in his mysterious and yet personal relationship with all of his creation. And that will be enough for Job. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And that's all ahead of us. As we move now to my third heading, learnings. I have three learnings from what we've read today. The first, Job teaches us not to be monolingual in our faith lives. Not to be monolingual in our faith lives. Job's words are words of pain and grief, anger even. In fact, as Justin indicated in his introductory remarks, the scriptures have a lot of this. Not as extreme as Job, I'll admit, and mostly addressed to God, whereas Job is really speaking to no one but himself. But the scriptures have lots and lots of words of lament, expressions of grief and pain and even frustration to God. It's a common scriptural way of speech but not easy for modern Christians. This week I read a piece by Scottish theologian John Swindon describing how five years after he'd preached a sermon at a very difficult funeral of a man called Brian, who'd apparently taken his own life, a stranger accosted Swindon at the airport. You're John Swindon? Yes. 
You spoke at Brian's funeral five years ago. I just want to thank you. I'd never thought of suffering and joy that way. I'd certainly never thought of that it was okay to be angry with God and to speak out in anger and frustration through the Psalms. I just want to say thank you. Then he left. Swindon goes on to write, and I quote, I left the airport and got the train to central London. As I thought about that brief encounter, I began to realise that the problem that many people encountered when Brian took his life was that they were speechless. His friends had no effective language to articulate the pain, lostness, and indeed anger that they felt towards the situation, in many ways, towards God. They had become monolingual in their faith lives. Sure and confident in the language of happiness and hope, but completely lost when it came to the language of suffering, brokenness, disappointment, and in particular, a biblical understanding of joy. Job 3 teaches us not to be monolingual in our faith lives. The first learning. The second, Job teaches us not to give up. The truly surprising thing about chapter 3 of Job is what's not there. In fact, is nowhere in the entire book of Job. What is the one thing you would expect or perhaps fear from someone facing the horrors that Job is facing and speaking like Job is speaking? And yet, although Job desires death as a solution, there's not a word to suggest he might even consider taking his own life. In all of Job's words of distress, there's never a hint of suicide. Job simply never gives up. In fact, as you heard his words, you realise Job leaves things to God. Always leaves things to God. He never gives up. In his passage today, although he's lamenting, it's a vigorous, active lament. He's full of energy, this Job, even though he's in terrible trouble. He never gives up. He's not passive or resigned, even when he has no hope. Although Job sees no way forward, he keeps going forward. He never gives up. Now, I don't know what horrors you may face in your life, and I pray for you as I pray for myself. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Which is a prayer, by the way, amongst other things, to be spared the kind of testing that Job face. The word temptation is actually the word for testing. I pray that for myself as for you. But if suffering were to come, the learning here is to imitate Job, who never gave up. As people of the New Testament era, we have resources not available to Job. We can imitate the Apostle Paul, who in describing a terrible crisis he faced. When he writes, he was under such pressure, far beyond his ability to endure, he despaired of life itself. He felt he'd received a death sentence. But, he says, this happened that we might rely not on ourselves, but God who raises the dead. This happened, this terrible, terrible event happened that we might not rely upon ourselves, but God who raises the dead. Job didn't, Job didn't have that. We do. 
never give up. Which leads to the last of my three learnings. We've had already one, not to be monolingual in our face lives. Two, not to give up. And thirdly, Job teaches not to be too neat. Not to be too neat. When I explained my outline to my wife, Margie, she said, well, that's certainly one part where you practice what you preach. Well, the book of Job is a book that defies simple answers. Better still, actually, it opposes simple answers. I don't know where you've heard of the saying of the American writer H. L. Mencken. He wrote, and I quote, Explanations exist, they've existed for all time. There's always a well-known solution to every human problem, neat, plausible, and wrong. That's the theme of Job. As we'll hear in the coming week and the weeks, the, the reason for the failure of Job's friends to actually be of any use to him is that they, and also the rather angry young man that turns up late, called Elihu, is that ultimately they only have answers that are neat, plausible, and wrong. And Job, to his credit, will never be bowed to accepting them. He will never give up the truth about himself or about God. That's his greatness. That's his greatness. And even when it's all over, when at the end of the book, Job is restored both to God and to his wealth and to his family, and Job's initial reaction, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed is the name of the Lord, has survived through it all. There is still no need answer on offer even at the end for not just in the book of Job but in, but in being itself in God's own world and in God's dealing with the world there is much that remains beyond our grasp not beyond trusting God in all his mystery and power but beyond our grasp nonetheless facing trouble and grief we may say God is in control I prefer myself to say God is in charge but nonetheless there remains that much which is beyond us so our third learning is don't be too neat but we do have this Job's cry of darkness in Job 3 is only matched by another cry in darkness my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And that cry is our salvation.